episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today's episode is a super, super interesting episode and it's really useful for someone who's looking to educate themselves and learn. So today is an episode with Alyssa Olnick and Alyssa is a postdoctoral research student and is studying the metabolism, menopause, menstrual cycle and has a PhD in exercise physiology where she researched the metabolism and exercise and science in females in general. She's on a really big mission in order to redefine this evidence-based fitness. She's really, really passionate about science-based nutrition and fitness and how to integrate the two into your actual life. So it's a really, really super interesting episode and we talk about what the research actually says about the impact on the cycle around exercise and performance. We talk about is there a better time to train in the month. We talk about why nutrition might reduce a lot of the negative impacts about different stages of the hormones and which phase. We also talk about on the pill, do people need to consider these into their actual training and their nutrition? Does the pill have any impact on your strength and your, your muscle growth? And should we adapt training and nutrition when hitting perimenopause? So it's a really, really interesting episode, information packed and really, really useful. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode with Alyssa. So before I start today's podcast, I'm delighted to announce it's a brand new sponsor for the Shane Walsh podcast. So I want you to stop think and ask yourself do you feel like the best version of yourself are you stressed having trouble sleeping or issues with pain management introducing irish owned cbd self premium cbd oil the natural solution to reducing anxiety improving sleep and helping with pain management cbd self oils are made from the finest organically grown hemp ensuring the best quality and purity all oils are produced the highest standard and are independently third-party lab tested CBD Self have a range of CBD oils with different strengths based on your unique needs and are very proud to introduce their brand new product, De-Stress Oil. This uniquely formulated oil targets stress and anxiety. Become your best self with CBD Self. Visit www.cbdself.com to order yours today. And as a sponsor of the podcast, I'm honored and delighted to give you a 15% discount for all listeners of the Shane Walsh podcast. So please use the code SHANE15 to get 15% off your order. Now for the podcast. Alyssa, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. So, Alyssa, thank you so much for coming on all the way from America. It's pretty cool when yes. I get people for all from internationals. Uh, so yeah. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on. I was lucky enough to go. I didn't get to go to Ireland, but I went to the UK for the first time ever in November, and I would love to come back uh, to to visit Ireland specifically. So, you wouldn't know. It's pretty cold. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> It's pretty cold. So yeah. Um, for anyone who isn't aware of who you are and what you do, Alyssa, can you give us a little bit more of a, a brief understanding of what you do? Yeah. So um, if you don't know who I am, I'm Alyssa Olenek, Dr. Alyssa Olenek, Alyssa Olenek PhD, whatever terminology, or known as Docless Fitness on most of my social media platforms. And so I'm kind of like, I joke a jock of all trades, a master of none. But I think at this point, I'm a master of, of few. I don't think I get to say that anymore. Um, but I have a PhD in exercise physiology where I trained as an exercise scientist. My joke is that I, I, my, my bias or my disclaimer is that I view the world as through the lens of a trained exercise scientist. Um, so I have a lot of training in that, but then my research specifically and my dissertation, um, was in masters has largely always been done in women and metabolism and exercise and how those things interact. And then I'm currently doing a postdoc, um, in menopause right now, researching that to kind of expand that across the time 
of the whole life. But, you know, you know, besides just science and the research and the female fit stuff, I'm also really known for having a lot of knowledge on I run ultra marathons and I weightlift and the hybrid training thing that's really trendy right now. And a lot of knowledge in like sports nutrition and human metabolism and all that stuff. So I'm just really nerdy and excited about a lot of things. And I like to practice what I preach and experiment with training and helping people crush their goals. And then scientists by day, coach by night, if you want to call it that. Um, so that's kind of who I am and what I do and, and the very, very cliff notes version of it. Awesome. Well, basically uh, my understanding of that, Alyssa knows a fuckload is what I took from that. <laughs> I, I, I do. And it's funny. Cause it's like, I just feel like it's just an accumulative knowledge of just yeah. curiosity over the years. And I think when I think back to early in my twenties and I was in my math, beginning of my master's in early undergrad, I just remember like thinking, oh my God, these people know so much. I'll never know that much. But if you read enough stuff over 12 years and do a dissertation and publish papers and keep reading and learning, eventually you do too learn a fuck ton of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that, and that is the truth because I remember looking back from where I first started like six years ago and kind of like didn't know my arse or my elbow. It is not ideal if you're a PT. Um, no, no. And a lot of them don't. No offense if you're still. listening to this podcast. You, a lot of them don't, but they don't know what they don't know. And that's the hardest thing to get people to understand um because if you don't know you're doing things wrong or ass backwards then you have no desire to fix or improve that <laughs> no, exactly yeah uh so some sometimes oblivious isn't oblivion isn't a good thing um so the big thing that we're going to talk about today is in relation to stuff around impact of the menstrual cycle we're going to talk about contraception we're going to talk about muscle growth we're going to talk a bit of perimenopause so i know it's going to be a brief overview of them because these are all the individual topics by themselves Yes, but I, know, but I know that we're going to try and do our best to try and condense this as much. Yeah, as rain me in because what happens <laughs> in every episode is people start talking about the menstrual cycle and they keep asking so many questions about yeah. it, and there's so much to cover just there that I never get to the birth control or the menopause stuff. So we'll, I will do my best to truncate it all for your followers here today with the disclaimer of like, you can learn more elsewhere. <laughs> okay, well, I'll put, I'll, I will be putting in all your kind of like yeah. your, your information, your links, if people want to go to that as well. Mm -hmm. So. The big thing that I'm going to ask you is, does the research say that there is an actual impact around the cycle and does it impact on exercise and performance? Because there's was information, now there's old information, and then there's new information. So where does the research currently sit? Yeah. So I think, you know, cycle thinking is really, really trendy right now. And I think that this comes from a place of women feeling like they just either have been told to ignore and not listen to their bodies whatsoever in fitness, which I want to point out is the industry, not the scientists and researchers have ever been saying that. Um, but two, you know, it in practice and theory, it makes sense, right? Like our body's changing across the month. So why wouldn't these things have to change? And so you know, there's been this over extrapolation of this, and I'm sure many of you have seen in social media when it comes to cycle syncing. And there's all these, if you talk, look at any different page or any different person, they're telling you a different way that you're supposed to be training. And a lot of this is coming from books or blogs written by a few select, I think, people that it's trickling down from like a bad game of telephone. Um, and a lot of it from this like holistic -y, natural side of health, um, over extrapolating that with the lack of understanding though, of exercise physiology and exercise science, which I think gets missed a lot in the cycle syncing conversation. And so when we actually look at the research in the data from the science side of things, it's that there isn't this like concrete 
specific trend of performance being impacted by the menstrual cycle. It actually doesn't really appear to be impacted by the menstrual cycle, at least to the extent or as specifically as people are making it out to be. Now, there might be some acute things that are impacted here or there or things that we can do to work with our cycles if you are somebody who is experiencing symptoms. But the consensus at this time is that it should be individualized. And a big reason for this is everyone's cycle is very different. There's this, not this 28-day cookie-cutter like one size fits all thing that a lot of cycles and geese stuff is kind of promoting. Because, you know, if you're listening to this or you know someone who has a menstrual cycle or whatever that you're listening to this, and like their cycle month to month is going to be different, let alone person to person. And this might shift based off when they're ovulating or how long their follicular phase is versus how long their luteal phase is. And then also like not only the magnitude of hormones, but how sensitive are people to those hormones. So somebody might report that this phase is making me feel horrific, where other people might be like, I noticed nothing at all. So the large consensus right now is that it should be individualized, right? Because menstrual cycles are messy. That's not an excuse to not work with them or listen to your clients. Talk to them and see how that might be potentially impacting them. And there are things that we do to con- to reduce or support these things. But for the most part, when we're thinking about it, like the, the biggest thing is, yes, listen to your female clients and what they're saying and their experiences learn to work with this, find trends or give them the tools to work with this. But there isn't anything that says, hey, you have to only do strength training or hit on these days. And you can only do, you know, running or cardio on these days. And you should only do Pilates and yoga on these days. Like there is nothing in the literature that says or supports this at that time. And so what we are starting to see though, is that potentially it's people's perception and maybe perhaps the interaction of the hormones with our brains and how our mood or pain tolerance or motivation is impacting how we're feeling mixed with the fact we can't ignore that if you have heightened PMS symptoms, you might feel crummier as a whole, which might not make your workout sessions feel as good. So even if your physiology isn't being impacted, you as a person is. So, you know, it's multifactorial, but at this point in time, there is no data to suggest any sort of concrete one-size-fits-all approach to cycle syncing and training. But there is stuff that we can do to work with or support our bodies depending on people's experience. What are some of those things? Yeah. So I'm, just, I'm trying to like rein myself in here. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to give like this very bird's eye view of it. So when we think about the training you know, when we think about working with our female clients in general, you know, you're not going to completely reduce every single PMS symptom across the the book forever and ever with these approaches, but you can potentially reduce how much they're impacting their client, your clients, or, you know, their negative experiences with this or improve some of this. And so the first thing I like to think about always when working with female clients is, are they fed? Are they getting enough macronutrients? Are they getting enough micronutrients? Are they hydrated? Because the impact of your nutrition or being underfed or even haphazardly fed, because every time I say underfed, people are like, well, everybody's overweight and obese nowadays. So that doesn't apply. That's not, but that doesn't mean that those people are eating in a way that's supportive of them whatsoever. Like being well fed doesn't also mean like haphazard eating, which a lot of people do, right? Most of you are probably working with clients who, even if they are potentially struggling with weight loss goals, they are probably eating like freaking bulls in a china shop across the week or just doing their best and not doing it in a way that's conducive or supportive to themselves. So we need to look at like, 
okay, are we eating a moderate to high protein intake in our diet? Are we eating enough carbs to support our activity levels? You know, are we overly restricting calories or are we doing the thing that like, you know, we see all these reels and jokes about it. And I'm like, it's not funny because it's like women who like don't eat all day, have a nice coffee, a whiff of air and a salad that's just greens for lunch. And then they're like, ravenous my dinner. That's not, that's not, even if you're overeating in that dinner meal, you're still in a state of low energy availability, or you're not supporting your body across the day there, or you're still like not fueling in a way. So like you you need to think about like, am I even eating in a way that supports my training and my hormones and my health, let alone before you start cycle syncing, that's like, you know, putting the cart before the horse. And so we really need to think about this. And of course there's like stress management and sleep. Those are all things too, because if you're overly stressed or you're sleeping poorly, your performance is going to be impacted just as much as if nutrition. And then those things are going to impact how you eat and how you fuel and how you feel. And so thinking about, okay, how can I help this person have better sleep? potentially reduce stressors within reason. You know, obviously as coaches, we're not therapists, but you can potentially give your clients suggestions on managing that. And then improving how we're eating because those are the big rocks that are going to drastically impact performance because while hormones might play a role here, women are more than their hormones. There's, they're, It's not your hormones aren't overriding poor sleep or poor nutrition or everything else going on in your life as a human. And so, you know, from there, what we can think about is like, are you actually following any sort of constructive linear trackable, manageable training program? Because how do you even know how your cycle is impacting your training if you're doing haphazard random workouts all the time? This doesn't mean that you have to like become a martyr to your fitness training plan. It has to be boring. And it just, are you doing things consistently enough for it to even matter? If you're just training, just not even training, you're just exercising and moving for the sake of it, then you're going to just need to learn to work with your body in your life anyway. So you don't need to worry about your cycle. That just might be another factor alongside sleep and kids and work and travel that you're just managing alongside these things with appropriate skills like load management, intensity management, rating of perceived exertion, zones or intensity, like using these tools that will kind of guide these clients in the moment of what's actually going on. And then from there, you know, if you, you know, you have people who are very dialed in, right? Some of us do work or are people who are very dialed in and we're like, okay, like, what do we do if you are that person? And from there, you know, I like to think about, this is where I like to think about, okay, what can we do now? And it doesn't mean you have to wait to this point in time to implement some of these things, but it's just going to be easier to see like, if they're actually improving stuff, if you have your other ducks in a row is like, how can I like, again, have a nutrition forward approach. So how can we use nutrition to support us better across the cycle? And so you know, one of the things that I like to think about is like just splitting it into two, the follicular phase and the luteal phase. And of course, it's going to be variable person to person. But like that follicular phase is potentially now there's more data coming out that some of these metabolism distances aren't really even there. But some of the things that I'm giving you are just generally good advice all the time doesn't matter of cycle phase. But I know people are like, well, what do I do if I feel crummy during this time? And so if you're feeling extra crummy, and something like the early follicular to like regular follicular phase, increasing your carbohydrate intake, Potentially, there is maybe more, you know, the menstrual cycle might be potentially more stressful, quote unquote, with training or recovery because the hormones are lower. But that might also mean that you have fine performance outputs. But some people might also feel worse because they're PMS, PMS symptoms and things like that. But we're typically more glycolytic or carbohydrate reliant, or at least potentially are during this phase. And having low carbohydrate availability or inadequate carb intake can make exercise again more stressful or recovery potentially harder. And or we might be going through those carbs more. So we might want to bump that up slightly or include that more or making sure that we're focusing on that more to support that training during that phase of our menstrual cycle. And then there's things, I mean, some of the early studies showing that like menstrual cycle symptoms are 
reduced with yoga, cardio, like in the moment, but also weekly HIIT training has been shown to improve PMS symptoms and or like that exercise hindrance. I know HIIT gets a big rap, um, but experts don't like discount exercise regularly as itself as potentially improving these things. That doesn't mean every elite athlete doesn't have PMS symptoms, many do, but we're thinking gen pop people who maybe this is like a, a huge barrier for them. And then when we think about getting into the luteal phase, I mean, the luteal phase gets all the bad rap, no fun. Like that's like saves the luteal phase. And so this is potentially a time where we might have to focus more on supporting our sleep and our recovery maybe um, in response to our training. I think a, a lot of people give the high hormone phase of this a bad rap, but not it's not necessarily showing in the literature that it's always impacting performance or it's always impacting our training. You know, the luteal phase is split into three phases. You have right after ovulation where your hormones kind of drop back down again, but progesterone and estrogen just start to rise. The mid-luteal phase where those hormones are really high and then that downfall into your next cycle. And that downfall is where most people are seeing potentially impacts on their training, their mood, their digestion, how they feel. It's that decline of those hormones rather than like maybe the, the first week or so of that. And so with this though, because progesterone is higher, you know, you might want to make sure that you're, you're taking an extra protein or enough protein. I, I often see people recommend eating more protein during this phase. And I think if you're eating high enough protein across the month, then you're probably fine. You don't necessarily need less in, in the first half of the cycle. And if you look at the, like, if you do the math, it's like maybe like 10 grams of a difference. So really it's not like, it's like, oh, I eat hundred grams in this phase and then 160 in this phase. But if you're someone who's potentially struggling with recovery here, maybe you are bumping up your protein intake or putting that closer around your workout window. So that way you have those amino acids available. But I suggest that to females to do with their workouts all the time, regardless of phase, or if they're using birth control or if they're menopausal is like making sure you have protein in your, in your body before your training, or at least immediately after, if you aren't getting that in before. And so, you know, with this too, you might have potentially impacts with like thermal regulation. I think that data is a little bit more clear at this time where that just means your ability to regulate and dissipate heat. And this can impact sleep or aerobic performance. So when we're thinking about aerobic performance, we might think about using zones where your heart rate will kind of tell you where that is landing for you. And so you might just have to move slower or at an easier intensity at the same relative intensity as you do other times of the month if that's happening for you, especially in hot and humid conditions, or using things like hydration strategies, electrolyte or salt-based supplements, or cooling um, approaches. So if you're like doing a race or anything like that, maybe you're using like cold towels or ice bandanas and things like that to help with that regulation. Mixed with this might impact sleep potentially. So if you're you're sleeping hotter or you're having a hard time cooling or managing your heat at night, you know, doing things which I suggest all the time, like cooling your sleep environment and or, you know, making sure that you're sleeping in a dark, cool sleep environment, supporting your sleep thing, something that can help here, that it can help all also with recovery, but also like natural melatonin production is tart cherry juices, getting a lot more data and research on it. And I find this to be like a super easy suggestion here. Um, drinking that at night, that could improve potentially your exercise recovery, but also help support your sleep. If there is any sort of potentially greater inflammation during this phase or poor recovery or whatever that feels like to you, that can help kind of reduce unnecessary or excess inflammation, which can help for exercise recovery. We don't want to blunt the inflammation altogether. I think a lot of people get too gung-ho on that. Um, but also supporting that as well. 
And then when we think about, you know, that, that, that phase as a whole, you know, we might have changes in micronutrient metabolism. So potentially supplementing with things can help support that, you know, magnesium goes around a lot and a lot of people are deficient in magnesium. So it's a really easy thing to su suggest people supplement because you can't really overdose on it. Many people are deficient in it. Um, you can always increase this with your diet, but magnesium supplementation might help here. There's potentially, you know, Zinc might be helpful here. Things like vitamin D and calcium and iron also may be helpful, but those are more ones that I suggest you either talking to a doctor or getting blood work before supplementing simply because you can potentially over, sorry, my creatine alarm <laughs> went off. Um, you can, <laughs> my daily creatine alarm, you can potentially, you know, hit your upper limits on those a little bit more. So always like test, not guess, things like that. Um, but fish oils or potentially there's maybe some, early data suggesting maybe things that are like anti-inflammatory, so to speak, like curcumin or stuff like that might be helpful here as well. Kind of just supporting this as a whole, especially for someone who's struggling with these things. But then, you know, I like to think about also, you know, maybe not necessarily bumping up carbs, but putting your carbs closer before or during your workouts, especially if you're somebody who is doing longer duration uh, training sessions or cardio sessions, because there is some data that shows when people are fed, the metabolism differences or the performance differences between the cycle phases go away versus when you're fasted. So it comes back to that feeding thing as well. And then, you know, leading into the, the, the cycle as well, you know, a lot of people start to report higher hunger. And again, there might be a 2 to 12% increase in metabolic rate here in that luteal phase. So potentially if you are sincerely more hungry, eating a little bit more. Um, and this isn't, this isn't like go eat a whole extra meal a day. This is like eat an extra snack, something that supports you. If it's what you crave, then have it, have be it. It's like something like 80 to maybe, maybe 300 calories a day, but that's a stretch. It's probably something very small, like 80 to 150, maybe 200 calories a day. 2 to 12% is a very wide range. And if you think about total daily calories, it's really not that much. But bumping that up or potentially using like a diet break if you're in a deficit or something like that, if you really struggle with this here as well. But a lot of people report to me when they take my advice of increasing carbs or calories as a whole in this phase, assuming they're eating enough protein, they find a lot of their performance impacts of this phase drastically go away. And so you know, we also have some studies showing that uh, decreased performance in the menstrual cycle phase gets restored to that similarly of the luteal phase with caffeine. Not, I'm not saying everybody overload with caffeine all the time, but if you have an event or something that's really important to you, that might be an approach or skill. And then my creatine alarm. Um, there's some. There's a new study that came out from my friend's group uh, looking at this, and creatine might actually help with some of the water um, retention and hydration that might be an impact with like because of thermoregulation in that luteal phase. So I suggest people take women take creatine across the month in general, but that might help with that as well. So you can just see there's a lot of supplement or food things. And these aren't things that necessarily you only need to do in the luteal phase, but it just might help you with some of these impacts that you're seeing in the luteal or menstrual phase with the recovery. Because let's be real, otherwise we're thinking about all this uh, this advice out there saying we get like, what, 10 good days a month? That's that's it to train and recover and perform. And that's just silly goose behavior. And so, and then when we think about like managing that late luteal phase to early menstrual phase where we're seeing a lot of people report or perceive or feel or are having declines in performance, you know, really using RPE, load management, potentially just dropping volume slightly if people are really struggling, but not changing up like the actual exercise modality week to week to week. Keeping in mind, following a progressive repeatable training program itself makes it less stressful and requires less recovery the next time you see it again. So it makes sense to keep doing the same thing over and over, but just mod modifying variables of that training program to support what maybe your client needs or 
you know, people think like, okay, you need to like take off a whole seven to 10 days. What if you just front or back load the week that you know you have the greatest symptoms? What if the two or three days before your cycle starts and then one or two days after it starts, you feel crummy? Well, what if you just flop your harder stuff for earlier that week before you start to feel crummy and do the easier stuff there? Put your rest days there or do plan for an extra rest day on that week. Like These are the things that we can think about. And this isn't necessarily cycle syncing, but it can be working with your body and your physiology and figuring out what works for you. I don't necessarily always love the idea of like deload every fourth week because most regular people are deloading from life all the time. And so they don't need like the end up deloading 50% of the time, but it might be a time where like, instead of doing RPE eight, you do RPE seven. Instead of doing four sets, you do three. Instead of like, if you were doing 120 pounds last week, but that feels harder this week, you just go down to 110 and that automatically reduces that volume using these skills that we know as coaches and trainers of what goes into reps, sets, volume, load, or intensity with, you know, cardio volume, whatever that looks like and adjusting those things so that the clients can still move forward with out feeling like they're working against their bodies or recognizing that women often just need permission to rest. I think the biggest thing is they're coming from like six days a week of what we call not really actually hit modern intensity junk volume training. And then they feel like crap. And they're like, oh, cycle syncing worked for me. I'm like, yeah, because you just like aren't lighting yourself on fire and overdoing it. And you just needed more appropriate balance of intensity and volume that made it recoverable and can let you move forward at the same time. So that's like my, that's like the quickest I think I've ever given that rundown for your audience. So they're getting a treat there. But if you want that in fuller length, um, I have a podcast episode called A Better Way to Cycle Sync. And it kind of goes more in depth into each of those things if you need that. Um, But that's the quickest I've gone through that, that rundown there as well. And knowing that you know, potentially some of the stuff that you're feeling in that late lydia early menstrual cycle phase, other than your own PMS symptoms, is maybe potentially like how you're feeling cognitively and mentally. And that doesn't mean that it's not real or valid. Just because your muscles aren't responding differently doesn't mean that your brain doesn't pay, play a role in performance. And just like being nice to yourself. I feel like females are so freaking mean to ourselves and beat ourselves up so much. But like, you can just like, take a rest day. Or if you know that you always feel like absolute hot raccoon garbage the first day of your period, then just always plan to take a rest day on that day and bump your workout to the next day. Like that's okay to do, but that's not like some magic cycle syncing thing. Like you would say that to even like the middle-aged dad whose kid kept him up all night. He slept two hours and he had a deadline for work. You might say, Hey, you know what, Kevin, Maybe we're going to not do this workout today and do it the next. Like These are skills that people need. And as we get into the menopause conversation, guess what? All those skills you learn and refine of modulating training volume intensity with fatigue and changes in life will then come there and you kind of already have the skills or the armor or whatever you need to face all the changes that life brings. Thank you so much for that because it is, it's very hard to break that into, what is it, 20, 25 minutes of talking there? And then yeah, kind of like, I know, I know. It's I'm very really hard to do it in that smaller dose. But I think if someone wants to listen back to that, I would highly recommend it. But I will put up that episode as well. Better ways to cycle sync for you for people as well if they want to listen to it a little bit more. I think the big lesson I took out of that anyway, or the thing that's going to like really strike a chord with the people that I work on a daily basis, is the importance of actually eating enough anyway throughout the month, let alone trying to add on more calories as well. Because a lot of people will go from not skipping breakfast, being a salad Susan at lunch, and then wonder why their head is in the press in the evenings and they wonder why they're overeating. If we bring in that little bit more structure and plan those little bit meals, and it's not saying that every day is going to be, there's going to be times where 
your husband's annoyed you or your kids have got sick. There's going to be times where you're going to need to adapt. It's what you yeah. can do that little bit more often that's going to help you to understand you because it's kind of like money. Calories are like money. The goal isn't to try and survive in as little as men as possible. Yes. It's trying to get with away with as much uh, as much as we can, but understanding that we can live a life on what we have. And then that's yeah. thing that people need to understand. Yeah. I think that if, you know, if we could get, you know, women athletes or women across the board to just fuel better and support themselves, so much of fitness gets easier and better across the spectrum. But again, like a lot of people are working with gen pop regular people who have so many inputs coming into their life. You have to really consider that versus the like people that are more like me. And the biggest variation I have to my training plan each week is maybe I shuffle my days around because I want to run when it's sunnier, but I'm doing like the same thing every week and I'm tracking my food and I'm sleeping consistently and I'm child-free. Well, guess what? Like if I'm having something that's really impacting me, I'm going to notice that a lot more than your client who just needs skills on how to manage those day-to-day things that throw them off or toss them off the wagon. And then they might not need to try, oh my God, what phase am I in? What should I do this week? Yes, have them be aware of their cycle. That's a good thing. But you don't need to have them chasing their tail of like, oh, it's a Pilates week. Oh, it's a weightlifting week. Oh no, like what what am I, like in, they can barely manage making their kids lunch and feeding themselves at the same time. Yeah, that's, a, uh, that's very useful information it gives a little bit more context because if i said that that could be perceived as kind of like a different tonality on that so it's yeah i think a lot of people think when you say like the cycle syncing stuff is kind of bunk they feel like you're saying well you should just train like men and i'm like well no it's just it's so individual that it matters on you but also you're more than just a menstrual cycle you're a person and and women go through these changes and they go through puberty and then they go through the menstrual cycle and then they have prepartum, pregnancy, postpartum, then they have breastfeeding and then they have peri and then postmenopause. And just, you know, we're overcomplicating the entire lifespan of training when we like know that a lot of these foundational and concrete things work. The biggest thing is that your sensitivity in response to your hormones is going to make it unique to you. And you have to figure out how to work with that. Well, also the fact that you're human on top of that and your menstrual cycle isn't the only thing that impacts everything in your life. Massively. And one of the other things that kind of kind of comes up for people is does the pill actually impact on that kind of the, the, the strength and the muscle growth that people are looking for? Because there are different researches kind of coming through. I know some people might not be reading the research, but they kind of might be seeing little snippets on social media and saying this person saying this, this person saying that. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with the information. So yes. where does the kind of current research on, on kind of muscle growth and impact on strength fly? So I'm going to preface this with whenever I talk about birth control, I was on TikTok for a little bit, then I had to get off TikTok, but TikTok's where I was like debunking the birth control stuff all of the time, even as much as the menstrual cycle stuff. But I just, I don't have the bandwidth in that app, but you know, you see a lot of these news ads of like birth control is killing your gains and, or people saying that, or there's a lot of fear mongering around birth control in general from the I'm mightier than thou wellness woo-woo space where it's like birth control is poison and it's killing you. And I always want to say birth control is a personal choice. There are many, many, many reasons a female might use birth control. That is personal. That should be discussed with their doctor or their own choice of what they want to do for their bodies or the reasons behind it. That doesn't mean we have to use it as a band-aid solution, but I it's something like something like 24 to 75% of women at some point in their life or athletes are going to use birth control in one way or another or report using it either for symptom management, which is a personal choice. If you don't want to try to figure out to manage that externally or 
they don't want to get pregnant or they have other reasons for using it. And so I always give that disclaimer as like your choice for using birth control is personal and it can factor in your performance and training. But like you also have to recognize that like if an unwanted pregnancy is going to drastically impact your performance and training, right? And so I always like, and like, you're not a bad person if you're on birth control. I don't think you need to go off it. Next, there are so many different types of birth control that I cannot possibly tell you what yours is doing in your body specifically. Because every time I talk about birth control, people will be like, well, if I have this one, what does it do? If I have this one, what does it do? If I have this one, what does it do? There are so many types of birth control. We can't, we don't have the exercise science on like whatever generation form of everything is doing, but we do group it into buckets. So we have like the oral contraceptives, the, you know, progesterone only based contraceptives and, or like non-hormonal options. So usually the combined oral contraceptive pills have some form of estrogen and progesterone. Now these are synthetic, you know, versions of these hormones that, you know, you typically see in your body. And that's usually the pill is what that is. It's usually the, the, the uh, 28 day pill where you're either taking the same dose for three weeks and a sugar or placebo pill for a week or a titrated dose across the month. Um, or you have progesterone only, which does have progesterone only pills. There is a contraceptive that is just progesterone only, um, IUDs potentially there's a non-hormonal IUD, the injections, the bars, those are more progesterone only based forms of birth control. And some people need to take those because of, they have some issues with the estrogens and the combined pills or the other things. And so there's potentially reasons they're maybe using those over those. And I say, all this is the disclaimer, because what I'm about to say is that the impacts on muscle growth and strength or performance maybe depend on if you're using something with estrogen or if you're using something that is only progesterone-based. But that doesn't mean go to your doctor and get off your birth control that you're doing because Doc List said that progesterone might hurt muscle gain because it's, again, it's multifactorial and we're going to break it down. So anyway, we think about the birth control as a whole. It doesn't necessarily appear to impact performance as significantly as we might think, but it might have a slight decline in performance. And the it's what's funny is the reason we think that this might be is birth control brings down hormonal levels, potentially closer to that of like the early follicular phase, the menstrual cycle phase. And that's also one of the reasons we think that there might be potentially impacts of performance in the early menstrual cycle phase is because hormones are lower. You know, as much as we think, oh, my high hormones are killing me, like are the terrible thing for me. Like our hormones actually do a lot for us, especially estrogen. That's really important. And the, the levels of estrogen in our bodies, at least in the pre menopausal state make a huge difference on our health, our muscle gain and all that stuff. It's actually very muscle promoting hormone. And so we think about our hormones again, estrogen is very muscle promoting, but progesterone might be more catabolic. It might be more breaking down. This is why we might need more protein in that luteal phase or making sure that we're getting enough to kind of counteract some of this, this muscle breakdown type thing. And so when we look at the data at performance, you know, we might see that estrogen or birth control might potentially reduce, you know, when we're thinking about aerobic performance, top in VO2 max or like our highest work output potential. And that might, it's very small, it's very mixed data. And if it's going to happen, 90% of you don't need to worry about that. The amount of that is so trivial and small that the only people that could potentially even care about that are like, elite athletes. And that would again, come down to like what they need for their body and themselves. It's, it's, these aren't super magnet, like huge magnitude of responses that, but they are potentially there. Um, 
within the data. But then when we look at the muscle and strength data, you know, what's interesting and funny is everyone's so anti-birth control when it comes to muscle and strength gains. But when we look at these studies and we and we break them into estrogen-only based birth control pill or estrogen and progesterone combined mixed ones or ones that have estrogen in them versus progesterone only, the estrogen or combined based birth control pills have just as good, if not sometimes better, muscle gain than we're seeing with just the regular menstrual cycle. There are some conversations around the strength there isn't the same as much as the regular menstrual cycle. So maybe that potentially that muscle is like less functional, but it, it just appears to have very similar patterns of muscle growth and or strength as the normal menstrual cycle does, likely because the presence of estrogen. And the thought of this too is that you're kind of having this controlled dose of that estrogen that's as part of that combined birth control pill across the entire month. So you're kind of always exposed to like an estrogen environment all the time. You're not going through that fluctuations of the cycle. And there is some data showing that the ones that have slightly higher doses, like 25, I think it's picograms, micrograms, I don't know the unit off the top of my head, have potentially greater than maybe those like 15 or 20. Again, these are the generations, the type of pills. I am not saying go switch your birth control pill because of this. I'm just sharing the data of how it's being done. But when we look at these studies, people say birth control is killing your gains. And that's because when you group together progesterone only pills with combined contraceptive pills, you know, you do see this potential blunting or slowing or no difference that we're seeing within these two. But when you look at any sort of research study in the field, I, I don't chastise researchers for grouping birth control users all in ones because it's just hard to recruit as is. But when we're looking at like specifically effects of birth control, hopefully we're teasing that out. And so when you look at the studies that then tease that out, what we see is that the it's the progesterone-based pills that are having I don't like to say that it blunts it or stops it because that's not the right terminology because people on progesterone-based birth control pills do still increase muscle size and strength. It's just the magnitude or the amount is less than that of the combined pill or the regular menstrual cycle. So it's not like if you're on a progesterone-based pill, you have zero changes whatsoever. You don't respond to exercise. And I think that's sometimes how people frame it. And that's not the case. But you are potentially having like less than you would if you were on a combined pill or had a normal cycle. But again, if you're taking a progesterone-based pill for a reason that's something that's impacting your life or your ability to train or pregnancy or those things, like those are personal and valid choices and you can still gain muscle and strength potentially on them. Um, but that is where we're, we're possibly seeing some of these, these impacts or impairments when you really tease apart the data. And again, it's not none, it's just slightly less. Stress, anxiety more stress. Trouble sleeping, it's a continuous negative cycle. This seems to be the norm for modern life. It doesn't always have to be like this though. Try CBD Self's uniquely formulated combination of CBD and CBG de-stress oil, designed to help naturally reduce stress and anxiety. Become your best self with CBD Self. Check out the website www.cbdself.com and use Shane15 to get a 15% discount off your order. Okay, thank you for that because I know that's not easy and it's a very open-ended question. So I have done an episode on the different types of pills and the impact on that. So I'll put that link into the show. Oh, perfect. People. Yeah, I was going to say that's like a, that's a hot mess to even. Yeah, it's a fire. It's a, a dumpster fire of information. Yeah. So yeah, and uh, and there are that whole thing of the pills bad for you, but it has to be personal choice. That is the, the big yeah. personal choice. And there are people who need it because there's conditions that they may have, like endometriosis or PCOS that they may need <laughs> because they're having so much discomfort and it's the only way for them to manage their pain. So, yeah. or one of the only reasons they can. So there's pros and cons behind it. It's personal choice. As long as you're given the right information and then the doctor isn't like, 
here you go. This is the only thing you should take. Because that's yeah, what happens when you I, turn I encourage 15 people, or 16. Yeah, advocate for it. I mean, I transparently, I've been on birth control since I was 18, 19 years old. But for me, I mean, it's funny because I went originally because I was having, you know, I didn't like the way my period felt with playing a college sport. But for the most part, I stayed on it because I was like, I was in grad school. I didn't want to like pregnancy was a bigger risk for me than any of that stuff. And so that was a choice. And even when I, like, I always tell the story of like, I went to my OB and my PhD cause I was going to come off. Cause I got into the literature and what happens when you go, I, I, ironically enough, I got into doing women's stuff in the birth control and cycle sinking stuff. Cause I was like, Oh my God, there's obviously an impact of the menstrual cycle and birth control. And then I got into literature and I was like, Oh, it's not as fancy as exciting as maybe I thought it was, but I started to get a little scared when I first started to dive into specific things. But I went to my doctor with like my specific list of questions, more of mine had to do with potentially how birth control impacts metabolism and having elevated blood triglycerides or potentially things like that. When I already have high cholesterol that runs in my family and cardiovascular risk and things like that. But, you know, I went to my doctor, I advocated for myself, I talked about it. We had a great conversation about how I'm running ultra marathons and I'm probably not the person who's at risk for, for this specifically, you know, but I was just, you know, I was like, Hey, I want to talk about this and the timing in my life and all of those things. And I had a, like, I really advocated for myself and I still stay on it, but I had a good conversation that left me feeling, okay, no, no, this is like coming off this right now would be more burdensome on my life than it would have been to And I wasn't having negative symptoms. I was having no negative side effects. It was just, hey, I'm a little hesitant about that. But you're allowed to talk to your doctor about your hesitancies or you're allowed to say, hey, this pill isn't working for me. I think I went through six pills before I found the one that I wanted. And most 18-year-olds don't know how to advocate for themselves and the doctor's like, I do, but I'm annoying. And so I did it. And like I kept saying, this isn't working for me. I'm having breakthrough bleeding. This is not, like this isn't, this isn't what I want. And I went through, I think, like a year of finding a pill that worked for me. And you know, don't be afraid to be annoying in your own healthcare or find doctors that are willing to listen to you. And if you want to get off it or not be on it and manage your symptoms as well, don't be afraid to advocate for that, you know, as well. So that's like my disclaimer there of like, you know, it's a personal choice of making sure that you're informed in the choice that you're making. I think it's a big thing that you said there about fighting, finding your own battle as well. Like if you're not comfortable with the decisions that's been made or the, the stuff that's been maybe pushed on you, don't be afraid to say, but to bite back and maybe try and test something out. And if it doesn't feel right or your body's maybe not accepting it, don't be afraid to go back to the doctors and the, the, the powers that be and kind of saying, right, almost create like a little case study on yourself and saying, this is how I was feeling before, this is how I'm feeling now, X, Y, or Z is happening. And don't be afraid to kind of yeah. have an honest conversation. And I always a lot of people that. message me and they'll say, well, what birth control should I use if I care about fitness and performance? And I'm like, I can't tell you that because just because this one might have more promising data, you might feel like absolute hot garbage on it, or you might not respond to it, or it might not work for you. So I, that, that necessarily might not make it better for performance just because like we have some trials that show that it's technically good, right? If that works for you, great, right? But at the end of the day, yeah, figure out what actually like responds to you or you don't respond to and, and figure that out for yourself. Yeah, big time. The last question that I'm going to ask you, Alyssa, because I think we've, I think I sent over like seven questions and we kind of covered three or four in each one. So I know, that happens every episode that someone But, it's, but it makes our job really easier. That's so all good. Yes. Um, the next one is the the information around the perimenopause. So yeah. should people adopt their training and nutrition when hitting perimenopause? I know this is broad as hell. 
but I think a lot of people are kind of like, there's so much literature. Should I do low carb, high carb? Should I just be cutting out fats? Should I be doing hit training? Should I be just doing weights? What What is the best thing for people? Yeah. So if you're going through peri or postmenopause, I'm really sorry for the current environment of social media because I know it's really hard to navigate. And I also want to say the peri and postmenopausal people are the most aggressive people on social media and they always take their anger out on me. So don't come into my DM inbox with your frustrations because I'm trying to help. So it's like I have to disclaim that on every post because they're like, but what about this? And I'm like, I it is it's it's messy and it's terrible and I'm gonna have to go through it someday too and I and I know it every day that I'm researching this I'm like it's coming for me too um and so what you know what we're seeing is perimenopause is that transition of you know your mid to late 40s into early 50s where you're having this zigzag craziness of hormones that are up and down up and down potentially with spotty or regular menstrual cycles then eventually one day, all those hormones just kind of plateau and drop off. And then you're postmenopausal. You have your last cycle and your menopause. So it's the transition into menopause and then there's postmenopause. That transition is where most people, not always, some people still have symptoms that carry forth forward into that menopausal period, are feeling all of these big dramatic changes to their body. And so Hormones are playing a role here in the sense of that what happens is that not only are you having this haphazard irregularity in hormones, they're they're also declining. And specifically, most importantly, estrogen is declining over time. And so it's that that loss of estrogen that appears to be playing a super big role with a lot of the changes that we're seeing compounded with changes in your lifestyle and behavior that kind of just gradually happen over time as we age or are just busy adults and humans. So a lot of people, they don't like to hear that part, but there is a social personal component on top of the hormone component. But what happens with peri and menopause is that I like to call it, you have less margin for error. So when those hormones go haywire or they start to decline, it's like you might not have gotten away with the things that you were getting away with before, or that creep of lifestyle changes kind of, it's like rocket fuel for that, for these things to start showing up and impacting you, so to speak. And so what happens during this period of time is we start to see declines in bone mass, declines in muscle strength, size, and function. We start to see shifts of adipose tissue from more of that glutes and hips and lower body that typically we see with like the fertile woman type fat pattern of storage um, to more subcutaneous and visceral adipose tissue in the central cavity of the body. I'm saying science words. Sorry. I've been writing a report on this in the stomach, in the stomach. Goes area. More, it goes male more dominant. Male it goes more male dominant. Sorry. I've been writing this. I've literally <laughs> been writing a book chapter on, on menopause and exercise, but I've been like in, in the weeds of reading science. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes my brain goes there. Um, and so you, you do have a shifting of body fat toward your stomach because that's what everyone complains about. Oh my God, I'm getting belly fat overnight. And that's because your body's just changing how it's storing it because the hormones are changing. So you do get more of that outer belly fat, but the problem is more so that you get this more, this deep tissue fat around your organs, that that's where most of the issues come from. Yes, aesthetically and personally, we don't like that outer belly fat, but it's not as much of a problem as that at deeper belly fat that we're getting associated with this. And so, you know, you have that mixed with decline muscle performance and function, which an increased fat, which can potentially make then your body less conducive of an environment for metabolic health, more inflamed, less like regulation of insulin and glucose, you know, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. All this comes from this like confounding factor of all these things kind of declining in response to estrogen being lost. 
the average report is like five to seven kilos of fat gain over the menopause transition. A lot of this does have to do though with, you know, if, you know, there is some of the status mix where it's like, yes, it increases and changes, but that's also a lot of it's related to changes in physical activity and or nutrition or metabolism related to this. So some of it is kind of what we are eating and how we are moving. It isn't just hormones, but hormones make it Harder. I, I feel like you have to like tiptoe around these things because like you get the pitchforks of menopause women coming after you. Try being, try being a male person. I I know, I like, know it. Oh, you're just so I I, came, I like you. I came off TikTok because I I put a post talking about the menstrual cycle in different phases. Like you don't understand me. You're mansplaining. You know what's funny is I had to get off TikTok because men could not handle me talking about exercise science. Oh, Jesus Christ! They were like harassing me, like making multiple accounts to harass me even though I was correct. If, so I just like stopped because I was like, I can't take- Oh, Perry, you can't do it. Like I came off the, and I was like, I'm too old for this shit. I'm just not able for it. Yeah, I was like, I'm not going to come on here and get harassed. So it's funny that we both received some sort of like reverse, like sex judging oh, yeah, of talking of top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's the whole conversation for another day. Um, I think men can and should talk about menopause and the menstrual cycle, but I do think that sometimes the industry ends up like giving men more credit for talking about it when like women experts are talking about this all the time, not just me. Like there's people that are incredible. So I'm like, that's the time I'm like, yes, we need men talking about it though. So like, let's like, I won't even chastise it because I'm like, we just need more people talking about it. So whatever. Um, but anyway, we have these changes. And so what we need to do is it's like, you know, everyone thinks you need some magical menopause training protocol. And it's not that you need some magical menopause training program. You know, the, the, the tried and true basic components of like of, of a good strength and conditioning program essentially is what becomes menopausal training. So it's like what actually men have been doing their entire life is probably what you should be doing as as a woman or it becomes more important to you now. People hate hearing that because I'm like, but like we just need good fitness training programs. And if you've neglected strength, power, or intensity, well-programmed intensity, I should say, most of your life, now you have to do it and you don't even know where to start or what to do. Or a lot of women like socially don't engage in lifting or resistance or power training. Um, so they're doing a lot of yoga, Pilates, boot campy type stuff and all walking, whatever that looks like. And all this stuff, stuff is fine for general movement. I don't want to say you have to stop doing this stuff, but what you need to include or increase in your workouts are strength training. So training specifically for muscle strength, not just high reps, lightweight. We really want to think about training for strength or hypertrophy. And there's some overlap in those ranges. And I know lifting in like low, low, low reps isn't necessarily as enticing to a lot of women because it can feel hard or intimidating. So I like to say like five to 12 is a good place to aim there. I think you can do a lot of strength, but you people tend to hang out too much in that 50 to 60% of their one rep max or max effort. We really want to think about lifting weights that are in that 70, 80 to 90 percentile of our one rep max, which for a lot of you means nothing. But if you stick between like five and 12 reps and you lift at an effort that is a seven, eight, or nine out of 10, 10 being the hardest, or you couldn't do a single more rep than you thought you could, is a really good place to make sure that you're kind of targeting both hypertrophy or strength or loading enough weight to get stronger. That doesn't mean you need to just jump in to the heaviest, hardest thing that you've ever done. But, you know, ease in, meet yourself where you're at. You can start out at a four, five, or six 
get the skill, get comfortable, and then build from there. Start with the weight that you have. Start with what feels comfortable because it's a skill too, right? So even starting with your body weight or bands or light weights is totally fine. But the idea is to increase that over time to making it heavier. A great way to do this is with barbells, but you don't have to use barbells for compound training. You can use machines, which are really great because they're like kind of locked and loaded for you and maybe more accessible in your gym. Or you can even use heavy dumbbells or heavy kettlebells um, and or make some body weight and resistance bands. You just want to make sure that you're going heavy. And then you want to be doing this two, three, maybe four days a week. I think for most regular people, two or three days a week is probably the ideal, ideal sweet spot for lifting. I, I, you know, people, a lot of people are like, you have to lift four days a week if you're on menopause. And I'm like, well, if you're doing like 10, 15, 20 minute sessions, maybe, but if you're doing like 30, 45 minute to an hour sessions, two or three days, a week, I lift three days a week, right? Like That's plenty. Um, and so you want to think about doing some sort of strength work that's going to target all major muscle groups of your body. So your chest, your shoulders, your back, your glutes, your hamstrings, your legs. And the easiest way to do this is just full body training sessions. And you do one movement where you're pressing away from your chest, one where you're pressing overhead, one where you're pulling towards you. And then you want to do something where you're bending at the knees and one where you're bending at the hips. That's the easiest way I can think that and including core. There's so many exercises that fall into that category. It's not better or worse to do one or the other. You just want to be targeting all of those major groups. And if you pick one of each of those for every workout, add a core exercise, two or three days of work, do two to three sets, five to 12 reps at a seven, eight or nine out of 10 effort for those exercises. Boom. You have a full body training split. Again, if you have a coach or a trainer or training programs that does this for that, you, it'll make it light years easier, but I know that some people that, you know, I honestly recommend anyone who can afford it, especially menopausal women to go work even a few sessions with a good PT or good strength and conditioning facility, like just to help you with that. I, I really recommend that. But if you can't do that, that's totally fine. Um, start there. And then we want to be adding in things like jump training or plyometrics or some sort of bouncing. And so this is because this is really important for bone health, walking, swimming, cycling, running. Yes, to some degrees, those might have a little bit of impacts. We need higher impact training. And it appears that the higher impact training combined with these modes or the lifting is what is the best for bone. So we want things like, you don't have to go in between like max height uh, box jumps, but jump ropes, skipping, Little tiny pogo hops are a great place to start. You know, those are like, your jump ropes are kind of like that. Those are a little great pl place to start. But then as you get more skill, you can start doing things like potentially doing like lunge jumps or, you know, squat jumps for power or med ball slams or like there's so many different ways to do plyometrics, high jumps or you hand move your box jumps or skipping or bounds. But for most people who've never jumped before, you probably don't want to just start doing big, extreme, high explosive jumps like you're an NBA star or a college football player. You can start with skipping, hopping, little easy things like that and increasing that from there over time. But we want that loading and impact for bone. That's what you want for bone. And then we want to think about, you know, cardio, all types of cardio is good for you and your health across the lifespan. And that declines rapidly. The reason we focus so much on strength and power with menopause is because you have a decline in type two muscle fiber characteristics. And that is with general as you age, but that might be exacerbated than more so in women and menopause because we have potentially more type one muscle fibers to begin with, or these were poorly developed across the lifespan. Or even as we age, we just kind of lose our power output in our muscles. So you really, really, really want to preserve that for not only, you know, having more muscle, make sure your metabolism better, it makes body composition better, all that stuff, but it also like makes you healthier and more independent as you go across lifespan. Whether or not you lose your lower belly, meno belly, 
you will be better off by doing that. Um, but then when we think about cardio, there's a lot of fear mongering around cardio and menopause and all this stuff. The biggest thing is that you do want to shift how much of what you're doing or what you're doing to be a little bit more intense, like high intensity interval training or sprint interval training or repeat sprint training only because that is more powerful. It is using more of those type two muscle fibers that's declining and it still gives you adaptations for like mitochondrial health and or VO2 max or aerobic health and fitness. But that doesn't mean you can or shouldn't do easy cardio too. But you want to maybe potentially separate. I think a lot of women in general just do this thing where they hang out in this moderate intensity all the time with their group fitness classes, or they only do low intensity where they're only kind of like walking all of the time. They're never doing like that like zone two or that really high, hard, intense stuff. So they're kind of hanging out and like never intense enough or like it's kind of intense, but it's not super intense or whatever it is. So I like to say adding and you start with one, but having some form of like higher output, whether that's at the end of an easy session or it's a session on its own of high intensity or sprint interval training, maybe two, three days a week as part of your training. And now this depends on like you know, if we're talking to general regular gen pop people who weren't doing a ton of cardio to begin with, if you do two or three days a week of that, that's totally fine. But if we're talking about the woman who's like a lifelong marathon runner and she's still running a lot a week, you might want to shift more of your, like you might not have like two quality sessions or two days a week where you have quality efforts in your running, but you still want to balance out that zone two or easier work or recoverable pace to match that volume. It always depends on how much you're doing, right? The athlete or the individual who's doing 10 hours a week of cardio or training is much different than the person doing an hour to two hours in a week, right? If you're doing 75, 90, 120 minutes a week of like that moderate to higher intensity stuff, you're probably fine. That's great. But if you start doing more and more and more, okay, well then let's do our two hard sessions a week and the rest can be easy so we can recover and adapt to that. But just potentially, you know, everyone likes to say 80, 20, but maybe, you know, when we're looking at menopausal women, we're thinking about, okay, 30 to 40%. This is, I'm making this up. There's nothing in the data that says this. We don't have an exact percent of this, but two to three sessions of higher intensity stuff a week might be more advantageous for you for this. So you really want to think about strength, power, and intensity intensity, but you can do zone two. You can do easy cardio. It's not bad for you. It's not spiking your cortisol and killing your gains and, 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 and bad for you. It's just that you want to make sure you're including intensity. The rest of the time of your week, do whatever else you can move often frequently. And one of the things that happens with this transition to menopause, you know, there's a lot of fatigue associated with perimenopause, menopause, but you also with this decline in estrogen, we might have this decrease in spontaneous physical activity matched with like, as we get older and life changes, like we kind of start to move less in general. It happens with people. And so, you know, we get this creep of weight that comes along with that because you're expending less energy across the day. You're sitting more or you're sitting more and not even realizing that you're not moving as much. So kind of that's where like, you don't need to be neurotic about it, but like managing steps or including other things. So if you like Pilates or you like yoga or you like walking, keep doing those things, staying active frequently, gardening, like whatever that is, house cleaning, like that can count too. I think everyone thinks like, well, if I don't hit my steps for the day, I'm a terrible person. Like, well, if you clean for three hours, you're moving for those three hours. Like that's great or whatever that is. But like, you know, move frequently and often in your day-to-day life as much as you kind of realistically can because it does start to kind of decrease and that doesn't that doesn't help you know you're shifting weight to your stomach you're moving less than you realize you also are probably moving less because you got older and life happens and you de- deprioritize movement and physical activity in general then 
you're potentially having, you know, changes that are affecting your metabolism and you're, you're eating more because, you know, you're tired or you're, you're stressed or your poor sleep impacts how we eat. And then you're slowly eating more. And like menopause women don't want to hear that some of the time it's, it isn't just your hormones. It's what you're doing too. It's that you just, again, have that smaller margin of error of what you need to do, but moderate to high protein intake, take your creatine, Tart cherry juice, cool sleep environments, and good, like, you know, good sleep practices. If you are able to, children and pets out of the room is being suggested. I watched, like, this is from other researchers that are experts in sleep and menopause that I got all this information from. I went to a few of their seminars and talks. Don't do the messenger because that interrupted sleep is a huge issue. Because hot flashes interrupt sleep, that's why there's a lot of that that, that impact on there. And that's something that, you know, you can talk to your doctor about using HRT, or I think there's a new medication that comes out that works with the brain, because it's like some of that stuff might be cognitive behavior therapy might help with that stuff as well. Um, There's no inconclusive data to support this, but there's some thoughts that exercise might help with it just because of learning like to manage heat dissipation and uncomfortability and thermoregulation. But it doesn't appear to be like, that's concrete, but it does not going to hurt your symptoms that you're having, right? But that is impacting sleep. So potentially reach out to your doctor if you're dealing with these things or this poor recovery. Um, and then, you know, something that I, I've found some interesting data on recently is this idea that women start eating less protein and their body wants more protein because they, they're less protein sensitive and you're having this decline in like just general muscle protein this muscle growth recovery, all that stuff. And you might be overeating as your body's trying to increase the protein that it's getting. But guess what? Our food environment has a ton of high fat, high carb, high calorie foods that aren't really super high in protein. So then you kind of end up eating more, 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 potentially overeating calories, but never feeling satiated. So you're like, I'm hungry and I'm eating, but I'm gaining weight, but I'm like, it's this mismatch of things. So really focusing on that 20 to 30 grams of protein per meal per day. Um, obviously how much you eat as a person is variable, but I think, you know, as a blanket rule, aiming for that 90 to 110 as a baseline for, for most females is a good place to be and start, obviously. Um, but you know, trying to get that in across the day, don't be afraid to supplement for everyone listening to this podcast to get that in, you know, or use what you need to do. But those are the things that I really recommend. And there's always going to be people who are like, I'm doing all that and nothing, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, one, you're going to have changes with aging. We're not going to be 20 forever. And that sucks, right? Like, trust me, like, you, you know, some things are, are going to change and that is what it is. You know, but also think about like really take a hard, honest truth audit of what you're doing in your life. Or if you're having extreme symptoms or struggling, talk to your OB about your options of what might work for you, whether that's medication or hormone replacement therapy or potentially getting with a good coach or RD that might allow you to like support these things more intelligently and take a more bird's eye view oversight of what you're doing with your life. I think that's a, a there's a brilliant synopsis in there, and I think it's understanding that there are changes happening. You, we can manage them a little bit differently, but it's important to feel safe. It's like with the pill, talking to the practitioners as much as you can and understanding what 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 will work for you. But I think the big thing there that I took from that that will be useful for someone is you need to meet yourself where you're at. If you've never set foot into a gym before, there's no point in you trying to add in a lot of endless amounts of cardio or trying to be jumping around doing plyometrics. Most people don't know what plyometrics is, but it's kind of like if you're someone who, as you said, is an experienced runner, well, then maybe adding in some weight training could help you. It's, it's meeting you where you are at and adding to that as you go or maybe 
tweaking things as you go rather than just trying to do everything, trying to change everything, because that's what's going to cause more stress and more overwhelm. And then you're going to end up pissed off and less sleep and more stress. And then you're going to yeah. be like, what the fuck do I do now? The best thing I would say is if you're new to all of this, right? Because a lot of middle-aged women have, aren't doing these trains. Do two days of lifting a week, stick to machines. Yes, machines. Walk more often. Yeah. yeah, walk more often. And if you do start doing some sort of cardio, do it on a bike. A bike is, I think, like just the easiest way because it, it's like, you know, there's no skill of running or rowing, right? But it's, you're kind of locked in on what you're doing and you can kind of get to these higher intensity outputs easier. So maybe do two lifting days a week and one bike training session and walk a few times a week and start there. And guess what? That's fantastic. Or do, you know, three smaller lifts and you do like maybe two days of smaller cardio and it doesn't have to be long. These can be 10 to 15, 20 minute sessions with these rest intervals. And I'll add here too, cause I think it'll be helpful for the audience. It's like, think like 30 seconds to two minutes of all out with like one to three minutes of rest in between. Usually it's like half the time to, to two times as long as the rest. But for many of you, this might be really hard. So you might just do it where you go all out for 30 seconds to two minutes. And then you just recover until you feel recovered in a, in a minute or two, and then do it again. That might be the easiest way for you as you're adapting and do like four to six of those and then build up to potentially up to like 10, like one minute on one minute off for 10 rounds is like the easiest, most friendly and a great way to like introductory for hit training or like 30 seconds on nine, 90 seconds off for, um, sprint interval training. And you can do those in like, it's like what, 20 minutes of, of a workout right then and there, but you don't have to start. You don't have to work, start at 10. You can start with five and it's 10 minutes and do that for a few weeks and then make it six and then make it seven, right? Like you can build with yeah. time as you go. Don't just dive into it. Yeah. It's like when you're trying to, when you're, when you're trying to save money, when you're younger, you couldn't set, you couldn't maybe save as much as you could, but now you're potentially earning a little bit more. You can save that a little bit more over time. So build yes. it, I always relate it back to finance because finance is what everyone's worried about. So it's, it's always trying to make it that way. Uh, Alyssa, I can't thank you enough for coming on because there's so many nuggets of gold in there and someone's going to pick out something else that I haven't picked out. And it's brilliant for you to have you on. So where can people find out about you and your podcast? Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram and YouTube. Finally growing on that YouTube. Please hit subscribe if you find me there. Um, I, I definitely am leaning into more of the long form stuff because Instagram really does only celebrate the short form stuff, but I'm on Instagram all the time anyway. I love the gram. So you can find me at Docless Fitness or just Alyssa Olenek across the board and all these things, doclessfitness.com. Um, my podcast is called The Messy Middle Podcast, but we cross post between my YouTube and my podcast. So you can kind of listen and tune into those things there on both platforms. Um, and hopefully more, you know, I have a lot on the menstrual cycle stuff, um, not as much on birth control and more coming on menopause pause, just working through a PhD and going into a postdoc. It's just sometimes I have to prioritize work before I can prioritize content. But usually my audience always benefits from me being head down in the weeds. So if you're looking for the menopause stuff, I keep telling my audience like it's coming or it's coming. I just like have to finish these projects before I can get it out there. Um, but I share the female fizz stuff all the time there. But I, I really want to emphasize as well, if you do come to my platforms, I have a ton on resistance training and cardio training. And a lot of people think that when I'm sharing that stuff, it doesn't apply to them if they are menopausal. I just made this post last week where I was like, if you pro follow the practices of what I preach for strength training, 
training like an athlete, power training and cardio training as a peri or postmenopausal woman, you would be 90% of the way there. So don't be intimidated by that type of stuff. It will really help you. And then for everyone else, birth control or menstrual cycle, like that stuff is what you need, especially if you're wanting to get stronger or gain muscle, or you want to do hybrid or concurrent training or include cardio in your training. It's, it's, I'm giving you the skills and tools there. So just when, cause I'm not saying the cycle or birth control or menopause, doesn't mean that stuff doesn't apply to you. It, it, it large, I mean, 90% of my clients are females and followers are females. So largely it does apply to you. So I know that stuff can be intimidating for people. Cause like, well, I'm not an athlete. I'm not advanced. I'm like the same stuff works for you. Promise. It will make you, you better meet you where you're at. So that's my like pre disclaimer. If you come to my stuff and you're like, where's all the female fist stuff? All of it's for you. Um, so docless fist fitness across the board. And if you found this helpful and you learned something today, send me a message and let, and let me know what was helpful for you. Brilliant. Alyssa, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, that was one of those episodes that you're probably going to have to be listening to again, particularly if you're a coach or if you're looking just for general information around the pill, menopause, perimenopause and how to impact your life and how it does impact your life or it may impact your life. So if you enjoy that episode at all, please do tag us up onto your story. Leave a review up on iTunes and Spotify. Pop us a DM. And if you're interested in working with me in a one-to-one capacity, click on the link in the show notes. And as always, your help and your support is always appreciate it so please leave a review up on itunes and up on spotify and thank you so much again for listening to the podcast